Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Little Things with Amber L.B. Swenson. Today I am joined by Dr. Jennifer Lundgren. She has written an amazing new book for Time of Grace. It's called A Guide to Mental and Emotional Wellness, Biblical Wisdom, Practical Principles, and Clinical Insights. I'm looking at it right now just so you see the cover. It's phenomenal. I haven't um, had Dr. Jennifer Lundgren on my podcast before, so I just want to give you a little bit of background as to who she is. She is the program coordinator for the Alcohol and Drug Studies program at Minnesota State University, Mankato. You live right down the road from me. She is licensed marriage and family therapist, a nationally certified counselor, and a board-certified telemental health provider. Dr. Longgren's mission is supporting those who serve others, and she frequently presents to educators and mental health providers on topics related to wellness, self-care, resiliency, and innovative teaching strategies. Jennifer is married to Trevor and has four children, Jack, Kate, Anna, and Henry, but I found out she prefers to be called Jenna, so welcome, Jenna. Happy to have you on Little Things. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited and grateful to be here. I love the names of your kids, by the way. I've always, they, they kind of had that old feel to them. Yeah. Jack, Henry, Anna. Yeah. They're kind of classic. They're vintage names and kind Love of simple that. as well. Nothing too fancy. Yes. Yes. No nicknames. Yeah. I really trendy. Sorry, go ahead. Nothing trendy. We kind of kept it simple and classic. And yeah, Jack's real name is actually Jonathan. Oh, so it's a kind of a interesting abbreviation of that, but we haven't called him that since he was born. So nice. Good. Okay. Let's get started and uh, talk about this book because I found this, first of all, this is very, um, very much a hot topic. The things that you're talking about are things that society is definitely talking about and also needs to hear. But I love that you bring it up in a biblical way. So can I ask you, how did the, how did the book come about? Was it your idea or were you approached or? Um, I, it was my idea. Um, Mm -hmm. I have written with time of grace previously. I wrote a book on addiction Mm -hmm. and, um, I've just been presenting on self-care so much through COVID. And, um, I just, I specifically presented last year at the Wells International Youth Rally. And it's interesting because so many of the strategies that I talk about from the psychological perspective are all outlined in the Bible. So kind of marrying those two just felt so natural and it was really well received. So I approached Time of Grace and I just kind of pitched it and Mm -hmm. the rest is history. Um, So that was really fun for me and just a a great honor to be able to share the things that I've been talking about and researching and applying to my own life every single day. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to talk about self-care. I want to get there because your concept of self-care is very different than worldly self-care. So we're going to get there. But first of all, before we do, I just want to talk about how many women will relate and find themselves exactly in the situation you were talking about in the first chapter, and that is stressed, overwhelmed, pulled in so many directions and saying, you know, I mean, I don't even know how to do this all. You see your to-do list, you see you have work, you have home stuff, kids mm-hmm. stuff, and then you you still want to, you know, maybe do some 
education, you know, additional education or reading for just yourself. And, and you're like, how do I make this happen? So first of all, how do we get here? And second of all, how do we get out of this frame of mind so that we don't feel stuck all the time? Oh, yes. It's such such good questions and so many, such a multifaceted journey to being here. I think I, I agree that this comes up a lot in my personal life and my professional life, that people have this kind of state. They're in this state of exhaustion, frustration, overwhelm, anxiety. And I think all the statistics vouch for that as well. So how do we get here? Um, I think it's it's a macro and micro level. Um, I think we have a lot of expectations on ourselves to kind of have it all and be it all. I think the in, influence of technology has really shifted. But I, I think women and people have been overwhelmed a lot since the beginning of time, I'm guessing. So I don't think it's anything new. I always study the history of drugs and I'm so interested, like in the 1900s, when uh, barbiturates came out. It's a type of anxiety med. It's the original anxiety med. People like that was so heavily used because people were so stressed and anxious back then as well. So I don't think the stress and anxiety is necessarily new, but I think that technology, the trend in technology is new and it's adding these kind of layers to it that we've never experienced before. I think it's seeing everyone else's awesome life and having pressure and expectations for us to be like them. Um, I think it's a lot of isolation and loneliness just in our communities and our family systems. I think a lot of people might have left the church or just aren't as connected to a church community. So it's a lot of kind of individual and societal levels. The other thing that's just kind of my idea and thought is that I think a lot of people, because of social media and technology, they really focus on what they don't have. They focus on what's missing. They focus on what they can't control. Um, and we just were exposed to bad news, other people's beautiful lives. And then we, we feel the pressure to keep up, which sometimes feels impossible. Yeah, so true. Um, so let's talk about self-care what it is and what it isn't. It's often viewed as, you know, going and getting a massage or going and getting a pedicure. And right off the bat, there are people who are like, hey, I don't have that kind of money. There's no way that I can go do that or I don't have the time for that. So what is self-care and why is it something that we should make a priority in our life? Yeah. So it's so interesting. I think just this whole topic is met with a lot of defensiveness. People are like, don't tell me what I should be doing. Like, I know I should be better. I should work out and budget better and go on date nights and meal plan and, you know, have a super tidy house. So I think just in general, just talking about it is met with a lot of defensiveness and resistance. Mm -hmm. But the way that I see it is that it's strategies that are intentional that you use to optimize your health in a variety of determinants. So it's not just working out. It's not just bubble baths. A few other components that I think are important, and it's not adding more to your plate. I think a key part is is having it be integrated into your life instead of doing more and working out and doing things that seem painful or that seem expensive. The other thing about it is I think just your frame of mind going in, if you if you feel hopeless or like you're not enough and you're really self-critical, um, I think that's a big challenge to it. I think just having this kind of curiosity of what do I need right now, this kind of awareness, 
and just understanding that it's a fluid process. It's not a one and done. You don't work out once or go on a walk and you're done. And the other thing about it is that it changes because we change. We ebb and flow and our needs ebb and flow and our life seasons shift and transition. So what we do for self-care in college, before kids, after kids, when we're empty nesters, when we're grandparents, before COVID, after COVID, before the divorce, after the divorce is going to shift. And I think just having that kind of flexibility in it is very important. And correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things that I got from this is that your concept of self-care includes a soul care component in terms of doing things that will help you not only honor God more with your life, but also maybe be a better parent. So maybe if I'm struggling with something like anger or or anxiety, for me, self-care may include going to a therapist and come or finding ways to deal with some of these things that are kind of getting me off track. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much the light the candle, have the bubble bath, mm-hmm. but it's investing in yourself and to make yourself maybe a Christian who honors God more or who is better with their family in certain situations. Yes, absolutely. So that's all part of it. It's not extravagant. It's not spending money. It's not an Aveda spa package. I think it's kind of been commoditized of like, buy this self-care thing. But it's really finding ways to nourish yourself, nourish your soul, Mm -hmm. nourish your relationships, nourish your emotions, nourish your body. Um, And doing it not out of, I should be doing better, but out of love, out of love. And I think that's just the best motivator as well. So everything that you mentioned falls under that umbrella um, and it's, it's, it can be integrated and, and just kind of thought about with curiosity and wisdom. It's really yeah. important. I almost feel like we have to rebrand it in a way though. Cause people are like, no more self-care. Stop telling me self-care. Like what yeah. is it even? And, um, it feels unattainable or it feels expensive or, or selfish. I think that's another big barrier, especially as women, Um, As Christians, it's like we're servants. It's not about us. It's about God and our neighbor. And kind of, I think if if people rationalize being selfish of like, this is self-care, I'm Mm going to leave my family for 10 days and go drinking or something like that. This is all in the name of self-care. So it's not necessarily rationalizing behavior that might be excessive, but it's also not selfish. It's... Mm -hmm wise and it's kind of proactively nourishing yourself so you can serve to your fullest capacity. Yeah. That's what I really wanted you to hit on is just the idea that the self-care that you're talking about is, is a drastic difference from the world's idea of Mm self-care. It is being wise and wanting to steward who you are the best that you can so that you can serve well. It's a it's a very different thing. And I think you're right. It's I think sometimes we get tripped up on self-care, just the concept of yeah. self-care. That's like, uh, I'm already turned off. Yeah. But when when you actually hear what you're saying, it's a very different idea than just saying self-care. So it's good that we understand where you're coming from. 
Yeah. Yeah. It does seem like, like a worldly idea, kind of like this whole self-love movement, like me myself will fix my mental and emotional problems. That's not what we're saying. That if you can only cope better, then you'll be fixed. That's not it at all. Um, And I think having that faith-based perspective and the spiritual soul care is a a component of self-care. So Mm -hmm. I think they can be kind of integrated just as concepts as well. Totally agree. Good. So identity plays a crucial role in how we act. So let's talk about self-talk and how that affects the way that we behave. Sure. Yeah. So self-talk, it's such an interesting concept. So what self-talk is, is, is your inner dialogue. It's kind of that voice in your head that gives you feedback. And for a lot of people, it can be very critical. And, you know, a, a lot of Christians, it can be very critical. A lot of high achievers, it can be very critical. It just says, what, what is wrong with you? Why would you do that? That was so stupid. They're going to hate you. They're going to, everyone's looking at you. That can be like an inner critic, it's also called. So self-talk um, is just a really, it, it can also release cortisol. It can release your stress hormone, your own thoughts. And the way that you talk and communicate to yourself can trigger a fight or flight response in your body. So it's a really important thing to understand and to have a a handle on. Um, So just, I think the first step in understanding it is really having awareness of what you are saying, because a lot of times it just, it's subconscious. It just kind of comes up without you intentionally controlling it. Um, So just kind of noticing it is the first step. And um, noticing if it is more judgmental or critical and and then shifting it and finding ways to be gentler and to be kinder. Um, using a scripture, I think, is always a beautiful way to integrate into your self-talk as well. Um, and it does play a role in your identity, too. Um, mm-hmm. It very much shapes how you view yourself and how you define yourself. Yep. I... I... I've been made aware of this from a couple of friends who pointed this out to me because I tend to say things like, oh, I am so stupid. You know, when something goes wrong, I'm like, oh, I am so stupid just immediately. Mm-hmm. And even I um, I was doing a joint project with Pastor Mike and I walked in and we were just sitting down for it. And I'm like, I'm the liability here. I mean, that was how I started it. You know, like, mm-hmm. I know you're not going to screw up. There's a good chance I'm going to. And then, of course, I did. Like, it's the sabotage of, you know, putting yourself down and, and being this critic. So once we notice it, because I think a lot of us struggle with this, mm-hmm. you're saying combat it with scripture. So what would that look like? So what is what is a self-talk critical thing that you struggle with? That I struggle with? Um, I would say being overwhelmed and kind of questioning, can I do this all? And that, okay. to be honest, that would, that prompted me like going into this whole journey and this mm-hmm. whole on this journey of like, how, how do I do this all? Can I, can I handle this? Okay. No, I can't. <laughs> I can't okay. handle this would be my example. So you've got this going through your mind, the self-talk. I'm overwhelmed. I cannot handle this. I can't handle this. So how do you combat that then? I think just to kind of, I, I like to kind of, also pair breathing with this and just to kind of slow down. I think first step is just communicating safety 
in, in your body, just taking a breath and just saying, what I say to myself a lot is I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Like, I love that reminder. Um, and I just, it's not necessarily self-talk, but it's almost just like encouragement. I, I say frequently, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Um, I say to my kids, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it a lot. And they're like, ah, you say this every day. Um, but I just think it's almost like mantras. It's like incantations of I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart. It's That just helps me feel calm. Um, and then I, I can, I'm a little cheesy in my self-talk. I'm like, you got this. You're doing a good job. Yeah. <laughs> You're a good mom. <laughs> I think it was Brene Brown, maybe, that taught me, um, I'm trying to think, or anyway, that taught me that excitement and anxiety, your your brain cannot differ differentiate between the two. So oh, when you're yeah. feeling super nervous, instead of being, you know, just going through your head, oh, I'm so nervous, oh, I'm so nervous, I can't breathe, yeah. I can't, whatever, just, mm -hmm. just telling yourself, I'm so excited, that just flips everything to where, and it's also the difference between I'm so nervous, I can't do this, to I'm so excited, I get to do this. Yeah. Yeah, that it's true. So anxiety and excitement, it's that activation. It's the butterflies and the pit of your stomach. It's your heart racing. It's the adrenaline pumping. And you're exactly right. The meaning that you give it is going to shape your outcome. It's going to shape your physiology and like how you label it and say oh this is this is a sign that i'm gonna fail or this mm -hmm. is my body calling me to action yeah. those two things feel the same um mm -hmm. i just dealt with that with my son playing baseball he's like mom i'm really nervous yeah. and i was like yeah that's your body getting you ready it's your body getting you ready to play and perform and it, it's uncomfortable sometimes, but it's it's normal. It's what what we're we're made to do to get called to action. So I think yeah, that that kind of labeling emotions and labeling feelings and and physiological states all plays a role in self talk as well, um, mm -hmm. and, and in failure and how you define failure and um, what that means for you if you did something embarrassing or stupid, um, and um, yeah, I think that that is a really important place to start. That's where we start in therapy quite a bit as well, is just kind of understanding what you're saying to yourself. Another tip, I don't know if I put this in the book, but they say to, to talk to yourself in the third person, and that can calm your parasympathetic nervous system in as little as three seconds. So they do brain scans of people who talk to themselves in the first plate, first person versus third person. And third person calms you down much quicker because it's it's almost like you're talking to someone else. Mm -hmm. um, so if I say, Jenna, that was hard, but you showed up there. You took a risk. You, you had courage there versus you showed up. You took a risk. You had courage. Um, so that's a really interesting thing. I think that's a really interesting concept. That's from Mark Brackett. He, in his book, Permission to Feel, he writes about emotions quite a bit and Self-talk is a coping strategy in dealing with overwhelming emotions um, because what what they mean to you will will shape how you feel about them and how your body reacts to them. So yeah, and even after the fact, 
After yeah. the fact, that's huge. You know, Thomas Edison, I heard somebody said to said to him when he was inventing the light bulb, it took like a thousand times or something. He, and someone said, how did it feel to have, you know, 999 failures? And he said, I didn't have 999 failures. I was, you know, inventing something that had a thousand steps, you know, and how you look at yeah. failure and how you talk to yourself. He could have after 50 failures, failures, yeah. said, you know, Thomas, you are not meant to do this. Clearly, you don't have what it takes. But instead, he was like, well, that didn't work. So let's try something else. Yes, yes. I've heard that story, too. He's like, I've just learned the 9,999th way not to do it. Yeah, was it 10,000 times? It, yeah, it was 10,000 oh, times it took Oh, him. that's even worse. <laughs> I know. Such determination. But I think I think another important part of it is just that growth mindset of like I'm learning. It's okay. I'm I'm still learning. I'm learning. Yes. I haven't learned it yet, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important thing as well. Instead of I failed, I'm stupid. I'm still learning. It's okay. This is a journey. Um, I'm still I'm still growing through this. I say that a yeah. lot to myself too. <laughs> this is all well, learning. Learning what not to do. I I have a lot of those lessons as well. And when you're saying I'm stupid, one of the things that's really helped me is to recognize that that is not something that God would say to me. God would not say to me, Amber, you are so stupid. How could you do that? Mm -hmm. You know, just like a parent with our children, when they try something and, and it doesn't go well, we just say, hey, you know, try something else or let's make a different decision. And, and yet we can be so hard on ourselves mm -hmm. in those, for instances. And so giving ourselves the grace that we give other people is a really important part of that growth mindset. Like, you know what? That didn't go so hot, but we're going to try again and I'm going to do something different next time. And mm -hmm. God help me. Hopefully it will be better. Yes. And I think just that forgiveness and that compassion that we do readily extend to others. Yes. And I've seen little like activities where, where people will write down their self-talk and then they'll, the in the activity, they have to read it to a friend and say mm -hmm. it to a friend and they just refuse. They're like, I would never, I would never do that to them. I cannot do that. And then of course the lesson is then like, why are you doing it to yourself? Right. And again, not to judge yourself for doing it of like, yeah, you're right. I'm so stupid with my bad self-talk. So don't judge yourself about your negative self-talk either, um, but just recognizing it and shifting it and starting with one positive thing or trying to shift one negative thing or I haven't learned this yet. I'm a work in progress. That's okay. And oh, I've I heard like that. the power of yet as well. That's a beautiful little thing. I haven't learned it yet. Mm -hmm. that has that hopefulness ingrained in it too. Yeah. So in this whole concept of identity, you talked about how, you know, you exercise regularly, you work on your diet and yet you, you realize that you didn't identify as a healthy person. And I, that really made sense to me because I am all, I mean, I try to be really organized, but I always identify myself kind of in that hot mess thing. Like, no matter how much I try to be organized with four kids and a husband, I always feel like my life is spaghetti all over. And so talk about that. How, how can we, the way that we're identifying ourselves mm -hmm. change what we do or don't do? Oh yeah. This was a really interesting concept for me to study. Um, so this is in a lot of books on habits and behavior, what, how we define ourselves is one of the biggest predictors of what we do. 
mm-hmm. what what we're willing to do, what we, what we pay for, what we fund, what we fight for, what we protest, how we define ourselves. So um, if you're a Viking fan or a Republican or a Packer fan or a um, shopaholic um, or a type A or an extrovert or an introvert or a hot mess or an anxious person, all of those things, all of these identities that that might be old or might be evolving, they really play a role in our behavior. So I I thought about that a lot of like, what is true? Like I, I identify as a bad driver too. <laughs> I got pulled over a lot when I was 16, a lot. And just kind of distracted. I didn't have cell phones back then. Uh, but I don't. I don't think that's true anymore. I don't. I don't. I don't think that I'm a bad driver, but I identify as one. And in the book, I talk about. I do a lot of things to optimize my physical wellness, and mm-hmm. I just. But I never identified as a healthy person because I. I had this idea that healthy people aren't fun. Like they mm-hmm. make me feel guilty. They don't have cheese dip at Mexican restaurants. <laughs> like you can't be. You can't just let loose around them because they'll judge you and they're super disciplined and like, I don't want to isolate myself and be boring. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it just seemed painful and isolating essentially. But I think that that not identifying as a healthy person, like you can be healthy and still have friends and still have cheese dip and (laughs) still be connected to your tribe. Like those aren't mutually exclusive. So it was just an odd thing. Like, isn't that kind of weird that like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like that person who only does organic and shames everyone else for um, eating pizza. But it it was interesting to kind of explore that and say, what, what's my resistance to that identity? And how do I integrate this into how I see myself? Because that has a huge implication on my behavior, huge Mm -hmm. implication. So I think, yeah, how you define yourself and the identities that you hold and I've talked about this at, at various trainings. And I had someone in, in a workshop say they define themselves as a farm boy from Iowa, I think. Yes. So super hardworking, on time, never miss work, doesn't take a mental health day, you know, whatever that is. Like comes in in a snowstorm, never calls in, gets meets all deadlines. Very strong part of your identity of working hard. Cows, you can't take a day off if you have cows or pigs. But where that was a barrier, where that was a problem or a liability is in people who didn't have that identity and who might have been more laid back, who might take mental health days and who might miss deadlines and have other focuses as a therapist, maybe being with the clients instead of having the paperwork done all the time, have sort of other strengths. So a lot of times the identities that we have can can create conflict and can create isolation. And I think in politics, it's, it's, it can be very harmful of us versus them. And I strongly identify with this group. And, and so those people are my enemy. So I think just having some awareness of this and using it as a strength and kind of exploring this a little bit is mm-hmm. warranted because it does impact what we do so much. Yeah. And I think you said that that farm boy, he never realized that that same thing, that same identity that he was grasping and holding on to and holding up, other people saw as rigid and judgmental. Mm-hmm. And so 
when he started understanding that, then he was like, oh, maybe I don't want to embrace that farm boy identity as much, or maybe I just need to soften it a little or what have you. Mm -hmm. And, and I think there is such value in, you know, really checking out what you identify or what you label yourself. Because if you do label yourself as that hot mess, Mm -hmm. then you're kind of saying, oh, I'll never be organized. So why try? Mm -hmm. As opposed to I'm an organized person that sometimes struggles a little bit with organization. You know, that's a totally different shift in who I am and my expectations for myself. Yes, exactly. And I think a lot of times our identities are shaped in childhood um, and they might not be true anymore. And you can rebrand and re-identify and evolve if you start doing the things that the person who is a runner does, like running. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, do I say this in the book? I can't remember, Uh, but my sister's a runner. So she recently ran four marathons in four days in four states, and she's doing it again, I think next week, another kind of four corner marathon. And for me, I identify as a reader. Like I read every single day. I read to my kids every day. We have books all around our house. And it's like the more pride that you have in identity, the more likely that you are to engage in a behavior that's congruent. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a really interesting thing as well. Um, if you identify as, you know, like someone, a racing family, you're going to do be at the racetrack. And um, if you identify as like a big sports fan, you're not going to miss a game or a, a really yeah. great cook. So like I said, I think it's important to explore that and then to figure out what you want to evolve into and that it isn't too late. Um, and especially, and I think just having the the identity as a Christian be the foundation and what mm-hmm. does that mean because and and how how connected are you to that identity as well yep. um, so just kind of exploring what does that mean and how do, how does that feel and what kind of joy does that bring and mm-hmm. and what behaviors are congruent that's really important to me as well is kind of operating in alignment to that too um and like i said if if some of these hats don't fit anymore then to just kind of let them go and um, figure out who you want to become. Yeah, that's a really important point because we don't need to stay stuck in our labels. So even if you did have the label of as troublemaker, you know, growing up, like you said, you don't have to be stuck there or as slow or or whatever it is. You you don't have to be stuck there. And, and that is one of the exercises. You say, well, who do you want to be, you know, and mm-hmm. think about what what identity you want to have, because you don't have to stay in the identity that you think of yourself in or that you've been given. Mm -hmm. I always think about kids and art that like, oh, I'm not good at art. I'm not an artist. It's like, who told you that? Well, is that true? Like, is that true? So just kind of challenging yourself as well. If there were labels of you're the, you're the clown, you're, you're the peacemaker. Like we do, we have roles in our family. We do, all of us do, no matter Mm -hmm. what that is. Um, and we have roles in our early peer relationships. You, the, Everyone plays a role. And um, like, yeah, as you're saying, just kind of figure out what what still fits for you and, mm-hmm. and, and where you want to go from here too. Let's talk about complaining. I took a lot of notes when I was at this point because complaining is completely counterproductive. It actually hurts us. So can you talk a little bit about what happens when we complain? Sure. Oh, yes, I can. 
And I, so I, I uh, present to a lot of educators and I feel like when I address this, they're just like, do not take this away from us. Like this is our outlet. <laughs> so a big caveat on this is I don't like, I want you to talk about things that frustrate you and I want you to be assertive. I want you to receive support. I'm a therapist. That is kind of part of what I do is, is understand the benefit of talking and receiving support for issues and problems. But I think there we've kind of gone off the deep end with complaining. And um, what we found is that it's just not good for us. It's not good for our brains. So I mentioned this earlier, but complaining also releases cortisol. And cortisol is our stress hormone, which is super functional in short-term acute situations. But if it's released continuously and every time you look at Facebook or every time you read the news or every time you talk to your sister-in-law or some friend or a neighbor or your mom or your dad, all of a sudden it becomes this chemical that is puts our body on high alert and essentially wears us down is bad for our health um, and really kind of shapes our perspective too. So not only they found that it's, it damages parts of your brain, parts of your brain in the hippocampus, um, but it also literally makes you more negative. It makes you more negative. And they did a study out of Stanford to, um, and I can talk about it. I just love, it's so interesting. They had two groups of people and one group, they said, tell me about a time that you were wronged or slighted. And the other group, they said, tell me about a time that you were bored. And then they had each group ask, they, they asked each group to do a favor. And the group that talked about the time that they were wronged or slighted, they were 24% less likely to help the researchers with a favor. So what they kind of hypothesized or concluded with that study is that complaining puts us in a victim mentality. And a victim mentality is inherently selfish. It's inherently survival mode of I need to protect what's mine. I need to hoard my resources. I'm not willing to help you because my survival's at stake. So kind of the overarching takeaway is if you're always focusing on the times that you're wronged or slighted, you're going to be more selfish. You're going to be less likely to help, to serve, to have empathy I mean, survival mode shuts off our prefrontal cortex, and that is our empathy, our creativity, our problem solving, our long-term planning, our critical thinking, our all of, of these adult um, kind of really important functions of what make us us. And it just kind of puts us into fight, flight, flee. And that's what complaining does. So what do we do with that? What if you do have someone who's negative? What if your your mother-in-law does bring up things that bring you down or or even your significant other, your kids? Um, so it's not, you don't want to be like, come on, guys. You know, that person who like yeah. is annoying and everyone hates and <laughs> don't make us feel bad. We're just trying to vent about this. Yeah. So I think it's important to listen to people and validate if they have a problem, if they have an issue, if they were wronged or slighted. It's really important to validate and to hear them. And then I think to not like fuel the fire is important. Not like, I know, did you hear about this thing the government did or my boss did? Or here's what my husband did last night. Not fueling the fire because um, there is so much to complain about. Um, and um, then just kind of asking questions or helping them, you know, reframe in a way that's natural, if that makes sense. 
like I wonder what what would help right now. It, it sounds like that was really really tough, but like what do you need from me? How can I su support you through this? The other thing too that I I recommend is if you are just bombarded by other people complaining, your Facebook feed, the news, everyone around you, if your job is like a really toxic place, you know, a lot of times people connect by complaining. It's almost like mm -hmm. a trauma bond. Like we are in this, like, especially in education, in a lot of places, if you're in a, in a tough situation, like that's something that you can relate with. Mm -hmm. So I just think to be super intentional about what you're looking at, what you're, where your conversations are going, um, you know, the type of content that's on your feed and just where conversations go. Like we have the power to shift that. We have the power to change what we talk about and to just kind of notice the people who energize you, who bring out the good, who bring out the hope, who bring out the exhilaration or the vitality, who you can connect with create creatively um, mm -hmm. or in just this way that helps you feel good and that just elicits kind of a spark in you. And then also, I mean, that's all in the Bible as well. Um, just it's it's really interesting of, of what to focus on. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there's a there's an exercise in the book instead of saying focus on what's negative, what's toxic, what's overwhelming, all the ways you've been wronged, all the problems of the world, all the wars and rumors of wars, what's beautiful, what's lovely, um, mm -hmm. and all of those other qualities that that God recommends that we direct our energy. And I like that was a really humbling thing to think about because I'm guilty of it as well. I have a sister, you know, I, I, I have friends and four kids. There, there's a lot, there can be a lot of stressors. And um, like I said, it's not about being, there's this other kind of term called toxic positivity. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just like, everything's fine. My life is perfect. Yes. I'm so sorry that you guys are overwhelmed. That's right. not helpful either. And it's not just saying my glad everything's great in my life. Mm -hmm. I feel it's still important to talk about things, but not to always be ruminating on them, essentially, and focusing yeah. on those things and being just c exposed to it. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, one of the things I try to do when my kids are really stuck in the, oh, this professor, da 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 mm -hmm. you know, um, is there anything that we can find to be grateful for? Can we be grateful that you had a car to drive to college and that you had the money to attend college and that mm -hmm. you're studying to be this or to just flip that switch because you can so often just zone in on the negative, right? And just ruminate, ruminate, ruminate. And your brain almost gets stuck there oh, and you yeah. have to jar it. Somehow you have to jar it and gratitude is a huge way of getting a different neuro path going oh, in your yeah. brain. Absolutely. And I think if the pathways are already there, it becomes like a snowball. And then you end in like, I'm just going to give up. Everything's horrible. <laughs> and like, it, it's ridiculous. And I think sometimes being tired doesn't help, you know, mm -hmm. just having being in a stressful season. I, I think tiredness is a big one. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of colors your perspective. You don't think critically, but you're absolutely right in just finding the blessing and, and helping kind of cultivate that perspective Yeah, and, and not waiting for, I think a lot of people kind of think about their life in a different way when there's a death or when there's a problem 
mm-hmm. or when they have some sort of hardship happen. Like for example, today in Mankato, there's an air quality issue. Yeah. And and I was out I went out to a park this morning with my kids and I just checked my phone and it's like this air quality is bad. Mm-hmm. And I've I'm not generally thankful for clean air on a day-to-day basis, right? So but right. Like, I, I'm not going to play outside with my kids today because the air quality is poor. So it, sometimes I feel like we, when things are taken away from us, then we're like, oh my gosh, we have clean air to breathe. Like what a blessing is that, that we can go outside and we don't have to worry about things that a lot of other countries or other communities have to ext- expend energy worrying about. Another thing last night, I'm, I'm doing a research study um, with the Department of Human Services in Minnesota and we're studying the experiences of women with substance use disorder and with mental health issues. So I had this beautiful opportunity to sit with seven women last night and just hear about their experiences accessing these services. And I came home just so humbled and just so grateful and just, I don't know, just I talked to my husband about it last night. I'm like, I any problem that I think I have right now I just need to rethink about because we're so blessed and right. we have so much and I don't want to be frustrated about our neighbor's lawn being long, you know, being too long or something like that. Whatever like so true. stressors come into play. I'm talking about people who have lost custody of their children. One mm-hmm. mom was crying because her daughter's birthday was the next day and she lost custody. So she can't contact her her baby, her oldest daughter. Mm-hmm. And I was tearing up as she was talking about it. So the here's another thing that Brene Brown did teach me. For, I know it was her, is this idea of comparative suffering though. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we're like, but I have all these blessings and those people have nothing. So I can't be ever frustrated. That's not helpful either. Right. It's still important to honor and validate your frustrations, but to do it with some perspective, if that right. makes any sense. Kind of a balance there. Like it's still okay mm-hmm. if I'm frustrated by things in my life. I can still feel that and share that and receive support. Yeah. But like I said, having having a wider perspective of what we've been given and um it's and and doing it in just a way that I don't know, that just brings you back to the Lord and brings you back to noticing the abundance in our lives. Cause it's really easy to focus on what we don't have. It's so true. It is so true. Okay. Let's talk about emotions. You say that emotions help people discover their purpose and passion and drive their persistence. Our emotions largely determine our actions. So how do we deal with our emotions to get the best positive rather than negative outcome? Ooh, that's a really good question. <laughs> well, I think it's it starts by having some intelligence surrounding emotions. And I think a lot of times, even in religious settings, we don't, emotions are flaky. If I were mm-hmm. like, Amber, I'm a really emotional person. You'd be like, like you're unstable, you know, like <laughs> person, grab yourself by the boots. I know Let's go. Like, we got I work to do. You. You're going to start weeping. And I yeah. like, you're not stable. Like we have all of these negative associations with emotions. Like they're not real. They're fleeting, mm-hmm. but emotions are so critical to how we learn. You can't learn if you're bored, you're not going to be engaged in the content yes. to what we remember 
to, to, to our decision making, even if you're like super logical, like I weigh the pros and cons, I look at all the data. Nope. Your emotions determine your decisions. And we need to just admit that, like just <laughs> our gut instinct, if we're tired, if we're sad, our perspective shifts based on how we feel. They do, they do a study about people looking at the steepness of a mountain and people who are sad view it as steeper than it is. Um, yeah. So I think with emotions, how to optimize them is to have some intelligence surrounding them and to do it with humility, maybe, and to not shame people for feeling emotions. So I think once again, having this, this curiosity of what do I feel right now and having a nuanced language to describe them, that's really important. Um, if, so what if, would that look like exactly? What's Talk about that. What would that look like having that language to describe emotions? Yeah, yeah. There's so Susan David, she's a psychologist out of Harvard, and she wrote a book that's called Emotional Agility. And it's really, okay. it's really interesting because there's a lot of data and evidence and research about what emotionally agile people, how they how they're more successful. If we can teach this in our kids, they learn better, they have better health outcomes, they have stronger marriages. Um, they, they, there's all sorts of data saying that emotionally agile people essentially are healthier and happier. So the nuanced language, she gives a really interesting example of the word stressed and just say, like, I'm just so stressed all the time. I'm so stressed. She's like, but what is that? Like, what could that be? So stressed could be exhausted, tired. Stress could be pressured. It could be overwhelmed. It could even be disappointed. In, in a study out of Yale, students were describing stress, but it was actually envy. It was envy mm. of the social capital and the wealth of their classmates, and they were labeling it as stress. So if we can get hone in on what we're feeling and have, have a word to describe it, that in and of itself is a protective factor. That protects you from snowballing. If you say, I'm disappointed, I feel sad about that, that is a protective factor from that snowballing into despair, which is a really different state, really different to cope with. Same with irritable or upset. That can protect you from snowballing into enraged and furious and doing something that you'll regret, saying something, a regrettable incident. So having that nuance, just having a vocabulary, starting simple, what do you feel? And if you can name it, your brain knows how to cope with it much more effectively because pressure is different than disappointed, yeah. is different than exhausted or depleted. Love the word depleted. Feel the word depleted. Yeah, I just think it's so important. And it's something that we're not in tune to doing, really. We're, I mean, that's a, you're asking us to do something that I think a lot of us don't have a lot of you know, experience doing is really pinpointing. Do you mean that word there? The mm -hmm. word that you're using, is that accurate or are mm -hmm. you describing something else? Because uh, the, the labels matter because oh, then we can do. deal with them. Then we can yeah. figure out what we're feeling and we can deal with it. And a classic example is going to the doctor and having like two words to describe the pain you're feeling. Like yes. think of if we go to the doctor and we have a pain in our knee. We're like, well, it tingles and it's throbbing and it's this stinging and it's like a jolt here. And they're like, okay, what, like, give me all the data about the pain in your knee. Mm -hmm. We could go in and if we went in and said, hurt, knee, hurt, hurt. That's what we do with emotions. 
Right. Just, I'm mad. I'm tired. I'm stressed. Huge, okay. huge, huge. You know, like what's the treatment plan for that? And I think mm-hmm. for men too, like I, I don't know how many of your listeners are men. I think this is really important to teach our boys as well, to teach our boys and our men how to how to listen and not fix and to and to be able to to describe it and share themselves. I think if if a husband is shut down and is lashing out, it would be really different if a husband said, "I'm feeling overwhelmed right now. I'm feeling overwhelmed." Then your heart like you just feel the difference instead of like, "What a jerk. Come on. I've been with the kids all day. Why you think your life is hard?" You know, speaking of comparative suffering, of just like Let's one up each other with who has it harder, as opposed to saying, I'm overwhelmed and I today was a really hard day. And what I need from you, I just need a little bit of time if you wouldn't mind um, ma- like taking taking the lead on supper tonight. I just mm-hmm. this is what I need. Like think of the difference. Think of all the fighting and the hurt and the misunderstanding that just having this emotional intelligence can bring. That's so important. And it's so necessary. I love that you're bringing this discussion up. Um, A lot of us get stuck in our habits. And we don't realize that we can change our habits. So we've fallen into these unhealthy patterns. And then we just say, well, it's who I am. You know, I just am this or whatever. And what's the alternative to that? Well, I think some flexibility with who you are and some <laughs> insight. It all has to start with knowing what you do, just getting getting conscious, getting some awareness, because so often we just go into autopilot. We just we don't even think about it. That's how our brain is designed. It's designed essentially to save energy and to optimize. It doesn't want we our brain filters out so much data. It's yeah. called the reticular activation system. It's kind of like if you get a new car then you notice that car everywhere. Yes. Was the car there? Yes, it was, but it didn't matter to you. So you didn't have a consciousness or an awareness. So I think just kind of getting conscious about what you do every day. And, you know, a lot of of people, their habits and even how they think is really repetitive and how they get out of bed, how they greet their kids, how they greet their spouse, how they change, what they eat for breakfast, how they make Mm -hmm. coffee, how they enter the day, how they enter their office how they communicate, how they make dinner, how they spend money, how they have a bedtime routine, what they do before bed, all of that. And I, this is overwhelming. I'm overwhelming myself as I'm saying it. But all of it is different for every person. And I think just to have some awareness as to what are some, who do you want to become, once yes. again, as our guiding point, and what do you need to do to get there? And how do you start so small that you cannot fail. How do you start so small? So, 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 so small. Like one one more glass of water, one deeper breath, a 10 second longer hug. That's where we're starting. Mm -hmm. And then from there, if it becomes a habit, then you don't need to think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Then it just kind of becomes automatic. You don't have to expend energy saying, Oh, should I do this? Should I go to eat right now? Should I, you know, should I go work out or do I need to do something else? Um, and just, just understanding the other thing about it is, is to eliminate decision because decisions are inherently stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really interesting idea. So if this is just what you do, it's who you are, you just do it without thinking. That's a big benefit in kind of hacking the habit neurobiology and the ha- habit literature. Um, 
and and just being intentional. So yeah. one, I, I might have used this in the book too, but like, I don't. We don't watch very much TV in my house, and it's not in our upstairs. It's in our basement, and I'm too lazy to go down there and watch TV. Mm-hmm. And that's like that was intentionally designed, so it's not in our living room. We don't just pop it on kind of mindlessly. Like it's a lot of work to go down there to bring the snacks down there and do that. And because of that, of designing our environment, um, that really kind of implicates your habits as well. So if mm-hmm. I have books out, if I have new books from the library, if I have books that I want to read available sitting on my nightstand, I'm much more likely to read those books. Yes. If I have floss on my nightstand, all of a sudden I floss. Um, yeah. You know, it's so silly. Um, even if you but identify so, as a flosser. <laughs> yes, it's so silly, but it, it helps us to understand that change is easy. It, it's easier than we think because a lot of times we talk ourselves out of this, but to make it easier, to put the floss on your nightstand, doing whatever it takes to make these things easier. Exactly. So you want to do those things, you know, like you said, having the book there so that, you know, whether it's on the kitchen counter or when you and on the table, have the book there. Like I want to read this book mm-hmm. and it's easily accessible and I'm going to pick it up and, and maybe it's, I'm going to read one page. Yeah. I'm going to read one page. I'm not going to read the whole book, but just giving yourself the opportunity to slowly make one change. Yes, exactly. And keeping it like removing barriers and increasing the likelihood. And I know so many people are like, oh, how do you read so much? Like, I want to read more. I should read more. I just don't have any good books. And I think a lot of people relate to that. And that's okay. So what like, what do you do about it then? Is that you like go to the library? I go all the time. Mm -hmm. Great reading programs there. And same with, I think a big thing too is making it pleasurable. And -hmm. I think a lot of people, it's kind of the healthy thing of like, I should eat better. I should save more money. I should be investing. I should be, you know, going through my stuff. I should be calling my grandma. So how do you kind of integrate that into your daily life and make it fun? Yeah. We like we we are creatures who want to avoid pain mm-hmm. and experience pleasure, and we do things that are fun. So how do you make it's like a Mary Poppins effect type thing, right? Like, yeah, get a really but, cute journal and have a pen right there if you want to journal more, because that's really good for anxiety, and it's not something that you should do. And you know, it's it's kind of increasing the likelihood that you'll do it if you remove those barriers and make it like, Ooh, this is cute. I got this at TJ Maxx. Yeah. Or go for a walk with a friend. So maybe you aren't, you know, proactive in making yourself go for a walk, but when you meet a friend and you get to catch up and you get to talk and then it it becomes something that's fun to do, then you want to do it. You naturally just want to do that. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I always use working out as my example and I have an awesome yoga class right now. I crave going there. I want to go there. It's with all, I'm probably the youngest person by 20 years, but I don't Mm -hmm. like, I've always felt like this. Everyone else is fitter than me. Everyone else is in shape. Everyone else is beautiful Lululemon clothes and hokas that are really cool. And I'm in like fragmented piecemealed thrift store clothes. And I feel, you know, like I'm not, I'm an other in this situation. Mm -hmm. I'm not fit, but it's like I found this class that's safe. It's pleasurable. It's quiet. I it it meets my skill set. Like I don't identify as someone who does yoga necessarily, 
but I'm starting to, and it's evolving and I look forward to going and it's, it's in my calendar. It's scheduled. That's another really obvious thing to make things a habit is schedule it, protect that time. It's a difference between saying, oh, I should go to the dentist and I'm going to the dentist at two o'clock on Friday. Yes. So this is what's happening. And especially for women, like it happens if we schedule it, if it's in our calendar. So whether that's creative time, whether that's um, connecting time, whether that's solitude, another really beautiful, important habit that a lot of moms and, and women in the thick of it don't get. They don't carve it out. Me included. Mm -hmm. Like I haven't, I have not mastered all of these things, just to be clear. Um, so it's all, I'm always a work in progress, but just having having an awareness of what you want to do is really important as well. And yeah. then removing barriers, making it pleasurable, scheduling it, designing the environment around it. I think that sums up habits pretty mm -hmm. simply, even though it can feel overwhelming even to talk about it. It's kind of like, where do I even start? Yeah. But I love this book because it, it will make you aware of so many things that just just like you're talking about. I mean, part of it to begin with is just an awareness. Like just start thinking about what you're saying to yourself in your mind. Just start looking at your habits. Start asking yourself, where do I want to be a year from now? And start making plans. And there was so much wisdom in here um, to just guide us and help us get going on a different path if we're stuck sort of in a cycle. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be super beneficial. I'm happy that... Um, it's going to be available that people can go to Time of Grace and, and get this. And I also want to announce that we will be having the chapters on little things. You're going to be creating an audio version, correct? Yes, I am. I've never done that before, so I'm nervous, but I'm very excited. And it's one of those things, every time I hear my own voice, I'm like, oh, how do I have any friends? So thank you <laughs> no. for anyone who listens. <laughs> no, no, no. You get used to it. Trust me. But I'm really excited and stay tuned for that to um, get chapters as they come out on little things. I'm so happy that you had a chance to talk to us today. And thank you for all your very important work. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just really grateful to be here. And I just appreciate everything you do as well. Thank God you. God bless. Thank you.